0: You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV.
1: Hi, Eric. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? Good. Glad to be here.
0: Glad to have you. Thanks for taking the time. Let me introduce us. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Eric Kaufman, a professor at Birkbeck College at the University of London, um, uh, a political scientist, right? and, and That's attorney. right. A demographer, you, is it fair to say? No, I'm, not, I'm not a proper demographer.
1: I'm a sort of political demographer. A political uh, it's one demographer. of the hats I wear.
0: You're an improper demographer. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, anyway, you have uh, published a number of books, most recently, White Shift, the Population, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Uh, the book has generated a lot of discussion. Uh, I think it's fair to say some controversy. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh,
1: bo- on both counts.
0: I, I you you probably weren't shocked. I mean the only alternative to that to controversy was for it not to be discussed, right? It was bound to be controversial if it got attention.
1: That's right. Yeah. I, I, I could almost predict the kind of attention it would get and the kind of criticism it would get. So I wasn't hugely surprised to see the response. Okay. Um but I was I'm, I have to have generally been pleased by the the treatment in let's call it the mainstream uh outlets. Okay.
0: Uh it's perhaps not surprising uh, that it's been controversial in light of the first sentence, which is, we need to talk about white identity. That's the first sentence of the book. And in fact, it's been um, you know characterized as, in some sense, a defense of white identity and a, a defense of the idea of white people having a certain amount of ethnic pride. Is that fair to
1: say? Well, yeah. I'm, I'm just saying that this category should be treated as a, a, as a pan-ethnic uh, group as any other pan-ethnic group um, it's say, black or Hispanic or whatever. I, I think that, like any I mean, identity...
0: You mean it's not completely homogeneous? Is no. That, I mean, no there, are, no. there are Eastern Europeans, you know, people of Eastern European descent who identify as white, people of Western Europe, and so on.
1: Right. So, like, in the American or Canadian context, this would be a both a pan-ethnic designation, so something above the ethnic group, but which is still... Connected to ethnicity, or increasingly it is forming into a community of shared ancestry through intermarriage and so in the case of both both those countries, you have had so much mixing that it's very few people have just one okay. European ancestry in their background, so it is functioning more and more as a as an ethnic group yeah and, but, and, and the, sorry, go ahead.
0: I was just going to say, and one of your hopes is, and we won't—I don't want to talk about this now—but we will get into it, and it's kind of what you mean by the term "white shift." I think one of your hopes is that there will be more mixture through marriage that brings more non-white people into into marriage with white people, and leads to what is, in some ways, a, a an ethnic group of slightly different composition in a technical sense. But you're saying might continue to identify as white. I don't want to get into that now, yeah. but, but that's yeah. that's part of the idea,
1: right? Right, right. A sort of melting or assimilative kind of ethnic group. Because ethnicity right. ultimately is about sort of a subjective collective consciousness rather than specifically any one marker. And so there is an absorptive capacity there. Obviously, some ethnic groups are have very rigid prescriptions against intermarriage. Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, but but in other cases there's a more fluid uh, line.
0: Right. Now you're certainly seeing some intermarriage in America these days. Um. So um. But let's get back to uh, before we get to your to the kind of I guess prescriptive side, or or, or to what you hope will be uh, an outcome right. you consider a, a happy one. Um, Let's dig a little more deeply into this idea that we need to talk about white identity and think of it in a different way. And I think you're saying think of it as less pejoratively than it is thought of on the left.
1: Right, right. I I mean, I think that and and some of this rips a bit off Ashley Jardina's work on white identity politics, where essentially people's attachment to uh, white identity, if you look at the American National Election Study, warmth towards whites is not correlated towards with coolness towards say African Americans or, or Latinos so there's a difference between uh, attachment to in-group and dislike about group and that's well established in the psychology literature and those two tends to be tend to be conflated for whites because they're it's associated with oppression and and slavery or or colonialism or what have you which I think is not actually accurate you know it's true about the past but I wouldn't say that that's Something that necessarily holds for all times. So there's nothing inherent in the DNA of whites as opposed to any other category that would make them retrograde ipso facto. So it's, and, and there is, if you accept there's some value in these transgenerate uh, you know, identities that uh, extend over the lifetime of an individual, then uh, if you accept there's some value to these communities, then I think there is some value in that group as well.
0: But in moderate
1: form, as with any identity, it
0: can't be extreme. Okay, two things you you just said. First of all, you mentioned DNA. Um eventually I do want to get into DNA in, in maybe a slightly different sense. I mean, you in the book you invoke kind of evolutionary psychology as a part of an explanation of why people might feel affinity with their ethnic group. Um I think I may want to give you a little pushback uh on the way you're invoking it, but I won't know for sure until I see how you respond. But anyway, okay. that that will that will get into um Another thing you brought up is the connection between um, affinity for an in-group and re- the relationship to, to the out-group, the possibly antagonistic relationship to the out-group. And and one thing, again, this is a little bit of an aside, but it really got my attention. You say there's a long-standing finding that surprised me, that there is no correlation between intensity of kind of in-group affinity and kind of hatred of outgroup. I would think, I mean, I think all of us have seen cases where it seems to be that what happened was the perception of the threat by an outside group led both to antagonism toward that group and toward a stronger identification with your group. I mean, that does happen, right?
1: Yes. So, so I should have caveated that to say except in situations of violent conflict, let's say. Um, so where you have situations of violent conflict or direct conflict over, but typically it's gotta be violent over resources, then yes, attachment to your own group does entail hating an outgroup. But, but what in normal times, So, for example, the situation of whites with regard to blacks and Hispanics, there is that doesn't obtain. It's a bit like identifying as a woman doesn't make you anti-male. So there's no necessary connection between these identities most of the time. Um, And that's borne out in the data. And there's a paper called In-Group Love and Out-Group Hate by Marilyn Brewer, which I think has been cited several thousand times as one of the reference points. Okay. Um,
0: And then, um, I mean, to take this to a more kind of subtle level it's your contention that the, uh, the the white the identification with other whites that we're seeing among some people in America particularly Trump supporters you might say is not particularly driven by a sense of economic threat from other groups that's one of your contentions we, we can get into that later too I, I just wanted to kind of put an asterisk there and, and get back to the 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 thrust of your Argument Now, I think w- one thing you would say is that um, it is not productive, and in fact, it's counterproductive for people on the left and people in the so-called resistance to call Trump supporters racist just because they identify as, as, as white or because they have strong feelings of, I don't know, ethnic pride that are in some way associated with whiteness. You, you you think that's a mistake. And I, I actually tend to, to agree that as a tactical matter, usually when racism is, is, is invoked in that way, the, the allegation of racism, I agree it's counterproductive as a political matter. But I think your argument goes a little beyond that, right? I mean, you're, you're also making an argument about the inherent legitimacy of identifying with an ethnic group, even if. It's not a, a minority group that has been oppressed in the past.
1: Right, right. So I, I, I sort of, it's sort of a communitarian argument about the value. There is value in ethnicity. Now, I, I think it has to be subservient to liberal principles. It has to be moderate, what Jonathan Haidt calls a common humanity sort of identity, where you identify with your group, but you have warm feelings towards outgroups. I think when you get into what he calls a common enemy, form of identity where identification with your group is premised on hating an outgroup, then it's very toxic. So it mm-hmm. has to be that. But I do think for the most part, that is where a lot of uh, people with a white identity, let's say, uh, in different co- European or American countries are. I mean, the one thing I would say is, of course, identify, uh, identification with one's own group can have uh, discriminatory consequences if you are have a bank and you discriminate in favor of you don't hate anybody, but you discriminate in favor of your fellow ethnics. That leads to discrimination. So you have to check that clearly it has to be moderated by concerns over equal treatment of others regardless of race. But I think that's very possible and in many societies that's how it works that people have identities but they moderate them according to principle.
0: Okay. Now um I guess you'd agree maybe you wouldn't, but that um some of Trump's rhetoric makes it kind of natural to think that racism is involved here. In other words, Trump does seem to be sometimes trying to foster antagonism toward another ethnic group, almost always Latinos, almost always, or at least, I mean, he would say it's confined to um, illegal immigrants, whatever, but he speaks sometimes in a pretty loose way and characterizes a substantial subset of this ethnic group as invaders and so on. So it's like not, it's not shocking that, and and maybe that's part of his genius as a political operator that he gets the left to say these things that are actually in your view counterproductive from their point of view but but it's not surprising right
1: right so i yeah and I, and i sort of in the book i try and i think we have to be very forensic sort of where he is being racist and where he's not being racist i think I, and that's an important line to to maintain so when he says uh, you know when he insinuates that Mexicans are rapists etc that is clearly racism because it's it's denigrating an outgroup generalizing negatively about an outgroup when he says we want to build a wall i don't think that's racist and even though one could say well trump's a racist person and therefore he means it in a racist way well we don't necessarily you know, one can be in favor of a wall for many reasons so i think it's I think we just need to be very sort of exact about which statements are racist, which are not. Uh, I think that would be the productive way. And do you think
0: as a... And we should say that, I mean, you are... um, You would like to see Trump lose the next election,
1: I take it, as a... Uh, Yeah, I I would say... I mean, a lot of the... I think he reflects concerns which are valid, but I think somebody like an Emmanuel Macron, for example, actually is addressing many of the same concerns that Trump is. So, for example... Controlling the border, addressing some of the anxieties around uh, Islam, etc., in France, but he's doing so in a in a way that is conciliatory. He's he's working with other countries. He's not fan, he, He's trying to do it quietly, and I think that's a much more productive way forward than what Trump's doing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Although, are you you are in are you in favor of building a wall as a as a way
0: to uh, to soothe anxieties in his base or something?
1: Um, I'm not against a wall. I don't think there's anything wrong with a wall. I mean, as there's already sections of, of, of wall. It, it's a question of costs. Is it good value? Uh, I'm not an expert enough on, on border security. I don't think there's anything wrong with building a wall. I don't see it as a sort of symbol of, of oppression or of exclusion or anything like that. So I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with it. I just don't know if it's the most cost effective policy to achieve what he wants to achieve.
0: Okay. Um, so we should say, um, well, I guess a couple of things. Um, one is that you don't think, I mean, there's a distinction sometimes made. What is it between civic nationalism and ethnic nationalism? Right. Are those civic nationalism does not invoke ethnicity. The idea is that there are these American ideals. I subscribe to them. That's the sole source of my patriotism, kind of. It has nothing to do with my race. I don't think of it in those terms. Um, you, on the one hand, I think you say that that is naive to expect that we can ever have a purely civic nationalism. We can talk about the reasons you think it's naive, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong in saying you think it's naive, but, but, but I think first we should explore what you mean by ethnic nationalism, because I think that's a kind of a subtle thing. It's not just ethnic identity, but it's, 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 uh, Because it certainly involves the nation's history and traditions and so on. And yet it has this ethnic element. And I'm not, I'm not sure I totally. Totally get that. Uh, I, okay. I mean, just as a person who like thinks about America in a certain way, as a citizen of America, I mean, I have never really identified with the Pilgrims. You know, right, right. Like, right. like right. I don't I don't know that I have any ancestors in the Mayflower that I've ever heard right. of. Right. Um, okay. And maybe that's why. But what do you what do you what kind of ethnic nationalism do you think? We have to reconcile
1: ourselves to. Right.
0: So I think that
1: civic nationalism essentially is what has been attempted since about, since the late 1990s, beginning really in Europe in, in a major way. Uh, and I think we do need those, those common values, but I think that that's, that's not enough. And, and I don't think it's enough when you have rapid ethno-demographic shifts. Now, Ethnic nationalism essentially refers to the idea that you must be a member of the majority ethnic group to be a full member of the nation state. And I think that's a terrible idea because it's exclusionary and it leads to all kinds of oppression. So the ethno state, for example, of the alt-right would be an example of that. Um, but I think the problem in a way is this ethnic civic typology was developed uh before the Second World War and during the Second World War when immigration was not a major issue in Europe, it was it was really developed to distinguish countries uh, that were formed from dynastic reform like France and those that were formed by breaking away, like if we think about Ireland or, or countries or Greece or countries that were f- breaking away from empire or countries that were formed based on unification such as Germany or Italy. It's not a great way of thinking about Immigration-based inclusion, multiculturalism issues. So, what I talk about really in the book is what I call ethno-traditional nationalism, which would say something like: um, so, first of all, the nation is the territorial political community, the whole. The ethnic group is the community of shared, putatively shared descent. Um, there is a view that might say, well, the you don't, you certainly don't need to be Protestant or, uh, let's say, in the case of the U.S. Uh, white to be a fully fledged equal member of the nation, you can be of any ethnic background and be and you are equal I think that's you can you can totally be in favor of that, but that doesn 't necessarily imply civic nationalism. You can also say the country has a particular ethnic composition, not everybody must be x, but it has a particular ethnic composition Now that is going to shift perhaps there 's going to be melting assimilation. But we don't want that to change too rapidly, is one position. So you might say we would like slower immigration to allow assimilation to take place in order that that composition doesn't shift too rapidly. That's not saying that somebody who is not, let's say, white and Protestant, is not a full American. There's a distinction. It's a bit like an accent. You can not have an American accent, and you can be an equal member of the nation. But clearly... um, A particular percentage of the U.S. population having an American accent is part of, not definitive, but is part of what lends character to the nation that you might want to conserve or you might want to slow down erosion to. And I think that's that shades of gray, not the black and white ethnic civic, but it's the in-between question of how diverse, how quick to change, and how much of the ethnic composition of majorities and minorities should be retained or, or to, to what extent that should be changing. And that's really the debate. It's not about one or the other. It's not about multicultural versus monocultural. It's about how multicultural right. and at what pace. So that's kind of really where I think this term ethno-traditional comes in. I just want to add one more thing, which is that a lot of the research now on nationalism is suggesting national identities are not given necessarily by the state or even a constitution, but they are in some sense, an emergent property of individuals' imaginings. And so a lot of the issue is in the secondary symbols of national identity. And I've done a study recently where you look at, for example, as an American, how important is landscape, American history, um, baseball to your sense of national identity, diversity to your sense of national identity. It's those secondary symbols where we see more partisan difference. So Trump supporters would be much more, for them, landscape and history would be much more important than for uh, Clinton voters, for example. So it's not about the Constitution and the creed where there's wide agreement, but it's on these sort of secondary features, which can extend to hundreds of different symbols where you see a distinction.
0: Yeah. As long as you mention baseball, let me just give you a, right. a question okay. out of the blue, and then we'll get back on track. Uh, I grew up in a world... Which, at the beginning of a baseball game, they sang the national anthem, and in the seventh inning, there was something called the seventh inning stretch, and they would sing, "Take me out to the ball game at every major league baseball park in America. Then I think because nine eleven happened, they started at many parks, perhaps most perhaps all, but but I think most they changed it so that uh at the at the uh, beginning, you sing the national anthem, then in the seventh inning, you sing, "God bless america and now. Uh I think at some parks they've started singing both. Like I was at a Mets game and they sang both Great. in succession, like God bless America and then take me out to the ball game. But still I have to admit, I like find that super irritating and it's not, <laughs> and, and I, I insist that that is not a reflection on my patriotism. It's, it's, I, I don't even want to get into why I find it. I, I just think, I mean, leave aside the fact that they're, 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 um, you've got a, a, an essentially secular patriotic song at the beginning and now they're bringing in religion with God. Fine. I, I'm not like a new atheist or something. It, it's not, it's just a question of kind of overkill. And it's like, you know, jets flying over military jets, flying over football game, you know, what, 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 the, the point I'm getting at is that, um, and again, you could call this like the genius of the right or something if you see this as a right-wing plot, but they, they seem to do things that almost want to provoke reactions from the left that while not really truly unpatriotic in nature are going to seem that way on the right. Right. Like if I say, I just don't think a football game should be about literally celebrating militarism, right. It's one thing to sing the national anthem, but to have like fighter jets fly over and have a swoon in awe is another matter. I'm sorry. Um, you know, that naturally comes off to some people as being unpatriotic, no matter how I put it. it, it this is a little off point, but
1: well, go ahead. What's your reaction to that? No, but I, no, I, I first of all, I mean, obviously as a Canadian, I would agree with that being <laughs> that yeah, right. But, but, but I think it's what's important here is. I'm I'm in favor of a national identity that's more like a menu. I mean, yes, there are certain things that you must sign up to. But essentially, people can find their own things to be attached to. And so I don't think it's a problem that Democrats and Republicans have slightly different things that they're attached to about America, as long as they're identifying with the United States in some way. Um, and, and so I would have a problem with that sort of hymn sheet approach where you're forcing everybody into the same mold, which right, sounds right. like I mean, what they're given doing. The,
0: right. given the fact that after all, these are sports that are in principle unifying things, right? Right. They, right. they, they, they have that potential to unify people yeah. across ideological bounds. That would be nice. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to go too far on this, but for the first time ever at the U S open, the golf U S open. They had a jet fly over at the end. I was blown right. away. I've never seen right. such a thing, and I've been watching the U.S. Open forever.
1: Right. Anyway, right. sorry. I'll yeah, yeah. You can continue with what you're saying. Right. So I don't think they should be pushing a particular version of, of national identity on people. I, I think obviously there, there will be some rituals like singing of the anthem, which hopefully are not are fairly innocuous. Uh, but yeah, I, I would tend to agree that's partly where the, I don't think the civic nationalist concept, which is very much the hymn sheet, these are the, the British values or the things that you must sign up to, uh, can be problematic for a number of reasons, both because someone might disagree with them, but also because uh, they might strike other people as not uh, relevant to, to the full richness of the national identity they identify with. So so I would kind of agree with your your feelings on that one.
0: Okay, I'm glad to hear that. Now, right. now back to the question. I mean, this is related to your thesis, because I still am, am kind of, I guess, grasping for something that you could call patriotism or nationalism, if you want, but that just has no connection to ethnicity. And, and uh, let me ask you this. I mean, in an ideal world, I mean, I think a kind of a, I don't think you quite say this, but I think a subtext of your argument is kind of that, hey, ethnic identity, not just on the part of minority groups, but on part of everyone is almost like a force of nature or a fact of nature or something. It's just something you're going to have to live with. And I guess I would, um, I would ask, um, well, leaving that aside we can I, I want to talk more about the extent to which it is or isn't in an ideal world wouldn't you just get past ethnic uh, identification I mean it's of course one thing if you are a member of a group that's systematically discriminated against well it's th- that's then an interest group it is it is it is in your interest to unite to fight the discrimination fine, but if there is no such history wouldn't you say that like I mean it's a completely arbitrary group in a certain sense, right? You actually sure. have no intrinsic common interests, unless you're fighting off some threat from some group, which you say is not a big part of the picture with white identity. So like, in an ideal world, wouldn't we get
1: Leaving aside whether it's possible, right. wouldn't we get past this? Well, it depends. I mean, I think it depends the context. Um, you know, obviously, ethnicity has been important through history for majorities and minorities for a very long time, and there's a reason I think people—it's like identifying with extended family. I mean, you could say it's meaningless. Um, you know, it—it it just has a draw, partly because it is ascribed, it is multi-generational. I think it is a source of cultural richness. These narratives and hist- memories, however flawed, I think do give meaning the sense of something that will survive one's own death, for example. So they do provide that. Now, of course, other things provide that. I'm not suggesting only ethnicity does. But I guess I can accept for both minorities and majorities that this construct has some cultural value um, in terms of meaning and belonging and and so So forth.
0: the Uh, The cultural construct that does invoke ethnicity to some extent.
1: Right, right. I mean, I think nations, which is the wider territorial, also has provides many of the same functions, but not entirely. It's more about territory and and political aspiration or politics rather than ancestry and that sort of sense of collective memory and consciousness. But but the other thing I I just wanted to just chuck in here was this. You can have minorities who identify as ethno-traditional nationalists. I mean, this is the other difference between whites as a majority ethnic group Who have an impact on politics, but you also have a significant chunk of, particularly Hispanic and Asian voters, if we're talking about the U.S., so the poll that I cite in the book about just after Charlottesville, you had something like 70% of Asian and Hispanic Trump voters agreeing with the statement, whites are under attack in this country. And I think in, in work I've done in Britain, you can see that Sikhs, for example, Uh, would have a relatively high, or or part of their British identity as Sikhs is a certain percent, you know, that that essentially white white British people as a majority of the country, that's part of what they compile as their national identity. Uh, So it's partly what you're used to. If I move to Cajun country, the Cajun share of the population there will be part of what lends character to my Cajun identity, even if I'm not ethnically Cajun, being... I'm living in that region or living in Harlem, African Americans in Harlem. This right. is
0: another uh, another little uh tangent, but have you ever had a conversation with an actual Cajun? I have. I've been to uh the area, yeah. It's almo- I found it almost literally impossible to understand them. It's almost a distinct dialogue. I'm not kidding. I was on a bus with a guy from Houston to Louisiana somewhere in Louisiana. Yeah. Like this like thirty-five, forty years ago. I just kept nodding as if I understood him. I could not understand it was like a, it was like a dialect that was unintelligible
1: to me, which is fine, I guess, but. (laughs) Well, I can understand French Canadian English, so maybe that helped me out. (laughs) Uh, So, okay, but, okay, so
0: now it's one thing, well, first of all, I mean, to say that, yes, you agree that whites are under attack, I'm not sure how much that reflects on the nature of your own sense of national identity. In the case of Sikhs, I'd say that I mean, here after nine eleven, they were having like Sikh Awareness Day, which I think the subtext was, "Hey, it's true that we wear these things on our heads that you think are funny, but we're not Muslims. Don't kill us." I mean, there was a, right. there was a kind of a tactical, natural, and and a totally understandable kind of uh, desire to distinguish themselves uh, from the the people that a lot of hatred was being directed toward. But I'm I'm wondering, none of this seems to me like uh something you say does happen which is like actual you know non-whites in some sense integrating into their conception of national identity like white identity i, I genuinely don't i mean do you imagine are you just saying like they have an right. image of Betsy Ross weaving the flag and she's white or
1: what right, right so so they would see the ethnic composition of the country as part of the character of the nation state to which they are attached. So if you move to Harlem as a predominantly African-American area, that would lend some character to the identity of yourself as a Harlem resident. It's the same kind of concept that it's not the only thing. It might not be the main thing, but it is a part of that national identity. For you, Is is whatever the ethnic composition is of the country is, is part of its character. And so the erosion of that would be part of something you might... Feel a loss that if you were conservatively minded, um, as a significant chunk of, say, Sikhs in Britain are, mm-hmm. uh, but but of course this is the point: is you don't, you know, there are going to be people who for that's not for whom that's not important at all, low-identifying whites, uh, minorities who for whom that's not part of their national identity. The interesting thing about Sikhs is they are attached both to the diversity of Britain and some of the white British characteristics. So it's not one or the other, but it's both at once
0: okay now there's a a kind of related not totally unrelated part of your argument which we alluded to which is uh your your hope that this white shift thing will happen let me uh see if i can find the actual um quote uh where you define white shift well anyway i i think okay it says i therefore favor white shift Here's your your quote, a model in which today's white majorities evolve seamlessly and gradually into mixed race majorities that take on white myths and symbols. So here, as I understand it, we're talking about so white person marries Latino person or black person or Asian person, their mixed ethnicity offspring identify as white. Is, Is that what
1: you're saying right, right, and and yeah, I think that's sort of the would be the trend and I think because of the cultural pull of the mainstream group now in the u s is a slightly different case than a lot of the European countries because in terms of the long standing group African Americans are an important long standing group, so it may evolve towards a not a, not a mestizo but a kind of a mix of, of white and black myths, but in terms of Europe, I think really the old, the groups that have the kind of cultural capital, if you like, have the older history where they're represented in the museums and so on. It would be the sort of majority. uh, You know, in the case of Britain, in England, it would be the ethnic English, for example. So I would have thought that people who would be, let's say they would be part Indian and part English, for example, would gravitate, I mean, looking to the future when pure, if you like, or or people who are unmixed are a small minority, which is where I'm Suggesting the demographics are taking us in the next century, mm-hmm. that there would be more pressure for those people, or at least there would be the context would would incline them towards their uh, white British heritage and roots and and not towards whichever co- uh, exotic roots they may have um, and this This is actually the way if we look at ethnic groups through history and over the long periods, the Turks are an example where there are all kinds of different groups that immigrated into Turkey during the Ottoman period, uh, and, and they came from Central Asia, but essentially most Turks trace their descent myths to Central Asia, even though that's really only a minority of their DNA. And, and, and so groups are always mixing through history and through time, but these descent myths are much less uh, malleable and changeable over time. Um, so I, that's sort of how I would see this occurring. You, a lot of mixing in Beijing, but... Uh, tracing ancestry back to the A-G-E-I-G-E. european uh, right that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's a michael lynn's yeah term. yeah yeah
0: um so i guess one one source of doubt about that expectation would be uh that for example the tradition in america has been that if you're partly white and partly black you're black i mean i mean that's how you tend to identify that's how you're treated now it's it's it maybe it's true that there are some advantages to doing that by virtue of affirmative action, but it's certainly a a a, a tendency, and I think it goes beyond um you know beyond African Americans. I mean, I, I remember when I was in uh, junior high, like in 1970 or something, and it was in San Francisco, and it was a majority Asian American public school, and and then there were also some blacks and some Latinos and some whites. And it wasn't a huge majority. I'm sure that there, there, there were probably 30. I mean, I, I would say it was a plurality Asian American for uh, for sure school. And and then well, there, there could have been 25, 30, maybe 35 percent whites. But I remember thinking that uh, I suddenly realized that the political climate at that point was such that something that was true that I think hadn't been true so much before then was that everyone non-white. Wanted to fundamentally identify as non-white. Whereas earlier, my sense was that earlier in that very decade, a lot of Asians and Latinos would have wanted to to kind of implicitly say, we're not black. We're right, we're closer to white than black. But you can imagine what the political climate in San Francisco was what? in 1970. That was not cool. And right. it seems to me that. A certain amount of that has really persisted and is relevant to your expectation that mixed-race children are going to identify as white.
1: Yes, it is. And we already see that, by the way, that uh, people with the same ancestry, say they're half Hispanic, half white. If they are Republicans, they're more likely to identify as white. And if they're Democrats, the reverse. So you get that. Ideology refracts this to some degree. Um, But but, but I think if we look down the road, uh, and I take the the case of Canada will probably be the fastest changing, where moving from about 80% white in 2006 to what I sort of predict, well, not predict, but based on some projections that I've seen from StatsCan demographers, it looks like it'll be about 20% unmixed white population roughly in 2106, 100 years down the road. Now, in that situation, the context is entirely different. You don't have this omnipresent white majority to sort of identify against so much. You are now into a more mixed situation, and it's in that different, changed context that I think the uh, mixed population will gravitate more towards the the white heritage. Again, in a world in which that is increasingly, you know, single digits in terms of percentage of the total world's population, so it'll be a much more distinctive. Um, kind of identity. So so that's kind of where I'm making... This is not... Obviously, most of my book is talking about the populist right and the drivers of the populist right, but but looking ahead and based on ethnic history and how ethnic groups have mixed over time and and the way their myths and, and symbols have shifted over time, I mean, that's how I would anticipate it going. But there will always be some kind of a political register. So in Britain, for example... The Whigs tended to identify more with the Anglo Saxons, and and the uh, Tories identified more with the Normans who founded the British uh, ar- aristocracy. And, and similarly in France, um, where you had the the liberal or the the liberals identifying with the Gauls, uh, and then the um, conservatives with the Franks who founded the dynasty. So again, there's probably going to be some kind of ideological inflection to how people identify. But uh, I guess my my view is because of the, the the groups that were there first that established the myths that are in the museums, etc., will have some kind of a first-mover advantage in terms of a cultural pull, uh, in terms of what people select to identify with. That That's sort of my assumption.
0: Okay. So, I mean, to kind of capsulize your prescription and your hope, your prescription right. involves people on the left reconceptualizing Your mainstream Trump voters, not the alt right, you agree that there are these uh, pernicious kinds of white nationalists and so on. But, but the fact you you think that the fact that these people uh, uh, want immigration restricted and maybe even explicitly say uh, I you know I'm white and I'm interested in the preservation of white uh, heritage and so on, you think that should not be deemed Intrinsically a bad or illegitimate uh, attitude on their part, a and and then b is a tactical matter. You think treating it as such as a bad or illegitimate thing is counterproductive. So so you would say, let's compromise, slow down immigration. If it helps to build a wall, you're not against that. Uh, and then your long term. Hope is, first of all, this will calm them down enough so that they elect someone less obnoxious than Trump next time, even if they do, you know, are the, the, the dominant, like, voting block A. And B, um, then you hope that we'll move toward this situation where actually there is a, a preservation of a kind of a, a white national identity that a lot of mixed race people identify with. But at the same time, I assume you would still accommodate in that vision, minority groups that strongly... There's, there's another kind of national identity that maybe we haven't talked about much, right? You, you, you want to accommodate the, the minorities who don't buy exactly into this this uh, kind of, you know, uh, whatever I w- you would call right. the, the version you hope right. for.
1: Well, yeah, I think it's important to distinguish between the ethnic majority, which is melting and becoming transracial over time, And the wider nation state or national identity, I have a different prescription for both of those. I don't think they should be mixed into the same. So, for example, yeah, I think that minority groups, African-Americans, Latinos, Asian groups, etc., who wish to preserve their identity, that's absolutely fine. And that the national identity should be that sort of menu-based identity. So, you know, an African-American is maybe quite unlikely to identify with Plymouth Rock, for example, and that should be absolutely fine, uh, or Christopher Columbus uh, on the part of Native Americans. But on the other hand, perhaps somebody who is is a white American, for them that might be important as part of their uh, national identity. So you have these different versions of national identity that can coexist without everybody having to subscribe to exactly the same set of things six, seven British values or whatever American... creed. Yes, there can be an American creed, but how they choose to go off pieced in their secondary uh, attachments is their business. Um, so yes, there should be this flexible bottom-up kind of national identity coexisting with this assimilative, melting ethnic majority, which... Probably initially will be centered on those European or white Protestant heritage. But ultimately, I think it's possible the U.S. might move in the direction of Mexico, which has this mestizo kind of uh, ethnic majority. It might be a black-white construct mixing those two myths of origin. So I think whereas in Europe, I think the those ethnic myths are more likely to remain uh, largely European rather than become mestizo. Uh, so that that kind of so you have two different levels. You've got the ethnic majority level and the national level. The other part of the context for this of course is there is there isn't the Cold War, there isn't World War II and these other threats which could solidify a more civic kind of nationalism based on values and and politics. And then lastly I think we also don't want to underplay the dangers of extreme civic nationalism. So a view that says, you know, if you don't subscribe to Enlightenment values you're outside the tent, and as a conservative Muslim, that might put Muslims in much more danger than a view that says it's okay to identify as an ethnic majority, that's part of the character of the U.S. Um, so I think people sometimes who who are told, well, you can't express an attachment to uh, white majority ethnicity, will go in this direction of a very hard-edged civic nationalism based on hatred of, of Muslims, for example. That, that That's okay because it's all about protecting liberal values against protecting gays and jews etc women against the muslim threat and which i I think is much more dangerous
0: i mean I, i see your point at the same time if you imagine a purely civic nationalism where people aren't really identifying so strongly with ethnic groups and if you take ethnic group to include religious group you might see something that you would think is natural on surely kind of political grounds which is that evangelicals in America and many American Muslims have a certain amount in common in, in, in their views right. on social issues. You can imagine, uh, you know, bridges being built on that. And a lot of progressives might not like what the bridges were being built for, but uh, there's that too. And in, in other words, I mean, in a purely civic nationalism, all kind of subnational affiliations would be what I would say are, are quote like rational, right? They they are they they, they are they involve the pursuit of common goals uh,
1: with people whose goals you share. Uh, does that make right. sense? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree. There are different types of call it civic nationalism. I mean, I sometimes use the example of ISIS. Right. As a civic na- nation, I mean, you can be any language, uh, any ethnic background. You just have to be a Islamic fundamentalist who believes in jihad. Uh, but uh, I mean, so the, the point is, yes, I, you can have a civic nationalism based on religion. Uh, you can have it based on the Enlightenment ideology, etc. Uh, so it doesn't specify which ideology. But all I'm saying is those ideologies can turn dangerous just as easily as an ethnic nationalism ideology and studies of genocide show that any kind of exclusivist ideology is is dangerous uh you know and can be the basis when you have
0: i mean a a version of civic nationalism i would uh want to subscribe to and in fact the version i think i like to subscribe to would just be inherently kind of anti-genocide i hope that's not too much (laughs) you know what i mean in other words you would recognize that that Well, I mean, I guess we shouldn't go this far. I mean, I I was going to say, I mean, isn't a civic nationalism in some sense more enlightened? In other words, in an ideal world, isn't, isn't that a higher stage of like cultural evolution? But I should say that I would see that as entailing a recognition that even national bounds, national allegiance is in some ways, oh, well. It's in some ways an arbitrary thing, of course, and and
1: sure. there's that. But I guess we uh, maybe. But that would not be- and and not everybody will identify with the nation, and I don't think they should. I mean, you know, people have different identities, different needs. But but some people, for some people, ancestry is important. So a lot of people who have a have a strong white identity, who are of Northern European descent, um, strongly identify with their ancestry, whether that be Irish, German. British, etc. There's a strong correlation between those things. So some people have that need to identify with ancestors. Others don't. There's no one size fits all. I think what the best sort of model for national identity identity I think is that flexible, what I call multivocalist model, which is more bottom up. Whereas sometimes the civic nationalism, which is sort of state directed, top down, French Third Republic style. I actually don't think that's the way forward. It's one thing when you're in a Cold War situation, but in normal times, I think you have to allow for more flexibility than that. Okay.
0: Um, so I, I, there are two things I bracketed that I want to get back to having to do with, uh, both having to do in a way with why you think uh, ethnic identification is such a kind of a formidable force. Um the first is uh, your contention that the kind of uh, white identity we're seeing in America, and again, this is we're not talking about the extreme, most uh, you know, kind of pernicious part of it, but just kind of uh, what you would see as middle American white identity that that uh, is very much involved in support for Trump. Um, your contention is that that is not driven by a sense of economic threat from immigrants fundamentally right.
1: Right, right. I think the data is pretty solid, um, that if you can look at income, you can look at class, you can look at employment status, and the correlation with Trump sentiment, for example, is extremely weak. Um, I'm not saying that perhaps, in Britain, I would say you can see on the Brexit vote, there is a small effect of poorer people being more likely to vote leave. In the American Trump data, for white Americans, it's essentially not there. Um, So I really don't think there's much in it. But but isn't it there a a minimum, a kind of a large scale
0: correlation? In other words, I would assume that, I mean, what you hear is college educated whites tended to vote against Trump, not college educated whites voted for him. Obviously, uh, there's an economic correlation there, not college educated people tend to make less money. Moreover, I think it's easier for them to imagine that they or their offspring or their friends would be competing for the kinds of jobs that immigrants from Mexico, that immigrants who are crossing the southern border are taking, right? I mean, it's like nobody I know is worried about their kid not being able to get a job in a meatpacking plant. And, and, and so there is, it, 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 I wouldn't say nobody I know, but you take my point. Not, none of the yeah, people I know but, who voted against Trump, the, you know, that, I'm, that are in my kind of demographic. And so, um, the uh there there is that large scale correlation
1: right well there is a correlation, but for example, education is a much stronger uh, ha- has a much stronger association with trump support than income does or class and the reason I would argue is that education is cl- more closely associated with Traits such as openness, tra- openness to experience, one of the big five personality traits, and also with a, a construct called right-wing authoritarianism, which we might think of as kind of uh, preference for order over difference. And and it's it, I think ed- it's ed- that. education is inversely correlated with that. I assume it it, it is well higher right- levels of education are are correlated with greater openness and Last and course. reduced preference for order over difference. Um, right. And and actually. I would argue most of the variation in Trump support would be within class, within even educational, within the university educated population. So for example, amongst whites, amongst college educated whites, uh, I'm pretty sure it's a majority that went for, well, probably a majority went for Trump. So I don't think education, gives us a little bit of variance, but most of it I think is at a deeper level. So a question like, American culture was better in the past. Or even America, things in America were better in the past. Much more powerful. Or death penalty support. That's much more powerful than education even in telling us who's a Trump supporter. So those invisible differences more so than the social or geographical. Geography is one of the most misleading things. This idea that people in cities somehow incline away from Trump is I think a, a mistaken Analysis because you have to account for the fact that cities have a higher percentage of college-educated minorities uh, and, and also people in their 20s, which are all predominantly groups that don't vote for Trumps. And so in the Brexit, in the case of the Brexit vote, if you take London, white working-class Londoners were as or more likely to vote leave uh, as, as whites or white working-class people anywhere in, in the country. So okay. it's, it's an artifact of which kinds of people live in urban areas.
0: Okay. Well, I, I, you know, I haven't delved deeply into the data. Let me say a little more about why I uh, will remain a skeptic uh, of of your view that partly because I won't delve into the data. I'll never have time. So I'll never be dissuaded, but, 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 but just to, you know, as for education being a stronger predictor than income. Well, if you look at a, a lot of highly educated people who wind up doing, making not much money, like they become, uh, say, junior high school teachers or they become, well, junior college professors, right? They don't make a ton of money. Their jobs aren't threatened by illegal immigrants, right? So I I think there are a lot of, I think what you really need to look at is who are in the, what what families and social networks are in the vocational categories and the geographic locations that you would expect to produce a sense of threat. Now, maybe you have killer data that washes that, Right. ...dejection
1: away. But, but... Wouldn't you ex- but, but wouldn't you expect then to see a, more of a correlation between, say, working class, class, and vote for Trump, let's say, amongst well, whites? Some, but there probably is some, right? There is some, but certainly when you put education in a model, that'll, that class will drop out. So it's much less than the material. The closer you yeah. get to a material consideration, the less it figures in these models. Of individual Uh, level data,
0: uh, I'm going to put that aside and promise to think about it in the coming years and and decades (laughs) and back to you. But the um, uh, but the other the other uh, source of my skepticism is, and I'm not saying you're guilty of this, but you see a lot of super simplistic analysis here where they go, "Well, is it economic or are they racist?" You know, and it's like, first of all, even if you you know, do make that move, which you wouldn't approve of, and assume that all these people are racist. The fact is that a sense of economic threat, in theory, could, in principle, lead you to be racist, or to to look at the more uh, moderate manifestation, could lead you to have a stronger sense of white identity that might not qualify as racism in your view. I mean, in, you know, I, I have a, I think things interact in this way. So it's not, I'm not saying you're considering these things dichotomous. I don't think you are, but you see a whole, whole lot of that. And 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 so I think a lot of the quote analysis you see, especially by journalists, you can just kind of dismiss on grounds of like starting assumptions, right? And I mean, you might agree with that.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree that a lot of it sort of bought, buys into narratives of one description or another. Well, I, I would think you want to be tightly bound to uh, the survey data, I think. Um, But I also would maybe push back a little in the sense I really do think this is principally about psychological dispositions and cultural values and not the, I think the material stuff, I'm afraid, really doesn't come through very strongly. I mean, I think it matters a little bit. And certainly it matters upstream, up the causal path. So there's no question that, you know, economic forces... Global economic forces are behind say business desire for more immigration and offshoring and things which are absolutely behind this so I'm not saying the economy doesn't play a role upstream but as a sort of proximate cause of this I think this is largely to do with values I mean for example you could you could do in a one thing that I've done is you can ask Trump voters for example how on a zero to 100 scale how worried are you about let's say urban sprawl? And you'll get maybe 50 out of 100. If Once you put two words, immigrants putting pressure on, you know, immigrants causing urban sprawl, it's sort of 75 out of 100. And in Britain, we can ask a question like, how much of a problem is pressure on public services? You get about a 48 from a leave voter. Once you say immigrants putting pressure on public services, it's sort of up to sort of 70 uh, it's, it's obviously impossible that the portion of the problem of pressure on public services that's caused by immigrants can be larger than the problem of pressure on public services. So I think this is, I sort of see it is that people come to their view on immigration first, and then that's a lens through which they view a number of these problems, be it competition mm-hmm. for jobs or pressure on services and so on.
0: Okay. Um, the, um, yeah. I mean, the last thing, my, my last source of skepticism is just like some of the analysis... Reli- relies on survey data, where the assumption needs. I'm skeptical of the extent to which people have uh, self awareness, and and to and the extent to which uh, certain kinds of survey questions elicit honest answers. But th- but, but leave that aside. <laughs> right, right. The, um, but but let me say. I mean, the, the the irony maybe is that to the if it to the extent that it is out of a sense of economic threat. I kind of consider it more defensible, because again, if, if it's not that the group actually has a common material interest that they feel they need to pursue in concert, then I'm like, well, ethnicity is this totally arbitrary category, then there's like, no, you know, I mean, it's like, why identify with it at all? That That's, of course, not your view. And in fact, to some extent, your book is a defense of the alternative view that, you know, right? A
1: moderate, uh, any identity in moderate form, right? I mean, I think you could say any identity is a social construct, which it is, even class. I mean, these are constructs, uh, but people attach meaning to them. Not everybody, so not everybody who is black will identify as being black. Uh, You know, some for some that'll be important, for others it won't be. It's it's like being a member of an extended family. It's not important for some, it is for others. Uh, But it is important for a significant chunk of people, and I think that's, a social reality that has to be factored into you know making an accommodation this is partly where i'm saying we have to get away from these binaries like open versus closed and to think okay instead of faster versus slower not black and white shades of gray i think the more we can get into those discussions about speed Rate of change, the better. Uh, we should be able to talk about immigration rates like tax rates, I think, instead okay. of moralizing it into, oh no, you're, you want restriction, you must be bad, you're in that category, the closed. I, I think getting away from that somehow, and I think this is where I'm critical of, uh, of the progressive side for, I think, taking the lead in moralizing it in those terms. That's not to say there aren't racists who support Trump, there clearly are, uh, but there is a larger chunk of people who I think just simply want Things slower. It's sort of conservatism, not racism, and I think that right now those two things are elided in a lot of the critiques. It's just all racism. And it's just all deplorable. And I think how do we get away from that? How do we sort of how to have a sensible conversation that says let's find let's find an accommodation between these two.
0: So, um, which Democratic candidate do you think has the best chance of beating Trump?
1: Well, I think Biden or Sanders, uh, just now I'm parroting the polls, but I think there are reasons why they would be uh, stronger. Um, But I can't claim to be an expert. Quickly. Well, I just think Biden uh, is more of a moderate on a lot of these issues, you know, in, in terms of immigration, in terms of the whole woke agenda, he's much less likely to to trigger a negative reaction, um, and similarly with Sanders, I think. I, I think so you're you're a lot- imagining these kind of swing voters in the Midwest
0: being a real thing, the idea there are these gettable voters who could go for Trump but could go for Democrat. That's your assumption, which isn't everyone's, but – but, and, and you think Sanders – I mean, it, Sanders, one thing I think he has going for him is he has a long history of fighting for the economic interests of the working class. You seem to think that's not so – so maybe that's not the part of it well, no, is.
1: It could still be important in the sense that he's not giving people a, a reason to vote against him. So he's, mm-hmm. part of this is it's it's harder to mobilize the base to come out. You, ha, you know, they're not going to hate these figures as much or not be as easily mobilized to oppose them. And that might be valuable in terms of lowering turnout. Right, right. Mm-hmm. I'm on the Republican side. So part of their their value and also by stressing economic themes. That is something that that would be more palatable to a wider set of voters. In you know, yeah. did, did Kamala Harris's
0: famous attack on Biden during that one debate actually help him with some Trump swing voters? I mean, not because they're like pro or anti busing, but more just the atmospherics of like, oh, another white guy getting attacked because he had views that most white guys had
1: back 40 years ago or whatever. Right. Right. And, and I always, because I'm kind of data led, I would always want to see that. But I, my instincts would be, yes, it probably would have helped him. Um, but I can't, I have no basis for saying that. Uh, but I, I I would think that that might have helped him.
0: Yeah. Okay. So one other uh, thing uh, we bracketed early on is this evolutionary psychology uh, question. And here's what I w- want to say. So you you do invoke this idea from Darwinian theory, which, you know, in itself is a solid idea, which is that um, in Darwinian terms, it can uh, it can make sense for two organisms that are more closely related than the average organism in their than two or you know than other organisms in their species to uh, exhibit altruism toward one another and correspondingly perhaps to have a sense of, of affinity um, that can make sense. And I, I would say th- uh, what's important is the way to put it is uh, so traits can evolve that facilitate that, uh, that doesn't mean they always evolve. Now, so a case in which they definitely seem to have evolved is within the family, uh, we notice that as a rule, you're more likely to go into a burning building to save a sibling than to save somebody you don't know, or even really a a, a kind of a friend probably, right? There is this, uh, you're more likely to share food with certainly your offspring, a little younger sibling, whatever, That makes total sense in Darwinian terms. It's not surprising that that kind of altruism evolved because, after all, for a long, long time now, human beings have grown up in the presence of siblings. They've been right there. There have been ways to identify that they're siblings. After all, your mother is nursing them or whatever. This isn't to say that uh, uh, the conscious recognition that they're uh, kin is critical, but the point is that even if at an unconscious level there's a recognition that, okay, these, these... are in a special category. So a gene inclining you to be nice to them uh, and help them precisely because that gene is more likely to be in them than in the average person can proliferate. Fine. But um, that's not saying, saying, that doesn't mean that, that that genes, that when you're closely related to someone genetically, your genes like magically sense that and are altruistic toward them. So When we take this up to the level of ethnicities, I mean, you're right that whites are in some sense more closely related genetically uh, to each other on average than they are to blacks. But that doesn't mean that a trait would have evolved that would have led them to favor other whites. okay? And 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 there are real doubts about whether there would have been during evolution um, the opportunity for at least a, a simple version of that trait to evolve. And, and the source of the doubt is our ancestors probably almost never encountered people of a discernibly different skin tone from them. Right. They they couldn't get on a plane and go see what was happening in Asia. You know uh, they were going to be around people who basically looked in, in, in terms of ethnic categorization, just like them. So the argument is and, I, and and some top flight evolutionary biologists have made this that there would not have been the opportunity for any kind of like you know racism per se to be in the genes and i'm not saying you say it is but you do no, I... invoke a version of this argument that i'm trying to cast out on right
1: well not really I'm not, i there is a school of sort of thought in ethnicity called primordialism and i'm i'm relatively critical of that, that which is sort of what you're talking about pierre vandenberg's work so you know, mm. who would argue, by the way, that in, that small bands would tend to have looked the same as their neighbors, but marked themselves out with scarification or hairstyles or some other way of telling each other apart. Um, you know, my, I, I guess I well, that, do that's, think. That's slightly different from what I'm talking right. about, and, and I can't totally rule it out. But anyway, go ahead. Right, right. But, but no, what I, what I, my argument is that, in fact, there are those, I guess I would think there are those evolved impulses, but they can be sort of tricked onto, Uh, say, civic nations or religions or other kinds of uh, collectivities that aren't strictly about genes. So I don't buy the idea that somehow one implicitly senses one's genetic relatedness to somebody else and therefore forms a bond. I think it's much more through uh, framing and messaging that's cultural that activates or pushes on these evolved dispositions. So my theory is much more cultural Culturally based. So, for example, a Jew and an, an Israeli Jew and a, and a Palestinian, sorry, Oriental Jew and a Palestinian might share more genetically than a European Jew, but yet the way the situation has been framed culturally would would make the Oriental right. Jew identify with the European right, Jew. Right. So, but but right, this is right. important because what I'm saying is,
0: you would not necessarily expect on Darwinian grounds that even though they are both from, I guess you would say, the Semitic family. I mean, linguistically, they're both from the Semitic family. And I guess your point would be that that common linguistic heritage reflects the fact that actually genetically uh, uh, Oriental Israelis and Palestinians have more in common than either of them does with certain other ethnicities. So, hey, why the conflict? What I want to emphasize is I'm saying, what you're saying is, well, these other things can override their genetic similarity. What I'm suggesting is that the genetic similarity has no significance in the first place in Darwinian terms. It's not impossible that it could, but many like top flight thinkers, including like George Williams, in some ways the grandfather of the late George Williams uh, of evolutionary psychology believed that during evolutionary history, there would not have been the opportunity for the evolution of traits that would have been relevant in this situation, in the first place, so it's very right. different sibling from family directed altruism.
1: Right. I mean, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, I've read other things that would suggest clearly this idea that to the extent you could protect in battle those who had a, shared a higher percentage of genes, even with neighboring groups, that 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 would therefore help your genes to survive. Now, again, no, no, that's I, the thing. Again, I'm again,
0: not, again, let me emphasize: if a if a genetically based trait that led you to do that um did uh show up it would do well okay the trait could spread i'm just saying that if anyone is imagining a trait that involves kind of literally sensing um skin tone the the similar visual similarity to you along ethnic lines that a lot of people consider a very unlikely trait to have developed for historical. I think, I
1: think that's right. Okay. Yeah. Because the groups would have looked the same. You're absolutely right. Um, Yeah. So, but I, I guess my book, I'm very much looking at the cultural constructs and how they use or key into, I understand your point that, that that it may not even be there. I'm not competent to judge that. I mean, I would, I I would say that my argument relies more on, um, on sort of the cultural side, uh, Attachment to these constructs, which are institutionalized over time, reproduced in communities over time and gain force that way. One thing I would say, however, is there is an art. Some people make the argument that as with World War One, for example, the work, you know, the socialist class, working class movement breaking apart along national lines, that it seems like when there is this contest between nationalism or ethnicity and class, nationalism or ethnicity seems to often come out on top. Now, why? That is, I know some of the primordialists would say that it's because, again, of this um, evolutionary character that is closer, that's more instinctive and more instinctual. I'm not sure. I think it's maybe because nation and ethnicity is able to key into that uh, disposition. Uh, but I don't think there's anything about genetic relatedness per se that that drives belonging.
0: Good. I mean, I want to emphasize, yeah. I think tribalism metaphorically is an apt term. We definitely are inclined to identify with groups and there are various cognitive biases invoked by our group identification that can lead us to to belittle other groups or think they're wrong and we're right. The the psychology of tribalism is a big problem, but two things. A, it didn't evolve in a literally tribalistic context because what anthropologists mean by tribe is something that couldn't have existed until the agrarian age and that's a really small um, part of human history uh, and not all, not everyone even traces their ancestry through such a phase. Um, but, uh, uh, but B, it's, it's very unlikely to be, you know, explicitly, um, and, and kind of instinctively, uh, ethnic, you might say. That, but, but that's not to say that the, that, uh, tribalism in some sense of
1: the term is not a huge problem, because I certainly think it is. Right, right, and, uh, but I think that tribalism, as I mentioned, can be deflected onto not just ethnicity; ide- it could also be ideology, as as we see oh, absolutely. so. Uh, absolutely, that's, that's the kind we see right, in America. That's the kind we see in America
0: right. right now. It's the same cognitive biases being invoked that are invoked uh, in in
1: a war between two ethnic groups. Right, right, and and I think in the U.S. you definitely see where the split is very much. Ideology number one. I mean, ethnicity is is actually well down the list. Absolutely, um, you know. So the the real battle, the real polarization is is ideological. Minorities are actually kind of in the middle on a lot of these dimensions of polarization between white liberals and white conservatives. So it's quite interesting. It's not it's not an ethnic conflict, I don't think.
0: Right. Um, no, and and you know, in a way, that's a source of hope. As are the many findings that I mean, they are in the arm, but that people can grasp onto very superficial traits. You know, the famous experiment where they take school kids and put green shirts on some and blue shirts on the other, whatever. Right away, you see, you know, the strong group identification.
1: Right, right. The the only thing I would say to, to that, though, is that some identities are better established. And there is an argument that you can't just... If I came into the U.S. and told everyone they're French tomorrow... I wouldn't be very successful at doing that because there are established repertoires and the identity has to resonate with pre-existing construction. So you can't just instantaneously switch people. That's true. But on the sa-
0: at the same time, if, if, if tomorrow uh, invaders from Mars arrived or some grand new terrorist group and declared war on Americans and French people, period, we would, <laughs> right? I mean, I, this is maybe more <laughs> my worldview than you, but Americans and French people would start remembering all these things they have in common hey who doesn't like uh, <laughs> whatever it is
1: the french people like
0: <laughs> It not americans right now but i'm saying that might change anyway um the uh so thanks for uh uh for taking the time and um and putting up with all my questions is there anything you want to say in closing before we uh sign off
1: not really. I think we've had a, had a very wide ranging conversation, uh, you know, covering a lot of the parts of the book. I mean, I talk a bit about this issue of um, the, the impact of progressivism or radical progressivism on the populist right, which I think is important that when you kind of close down the ability of the mainstream parties or mainstream politicians to talk about something like immigration, because that's sort of represented as racist that then creates a market opportunity for the populist right actor. So I think part of the solution to this is actually having the mainstream parties be able to have these conversations. And that will – so it's a bit like a bootlegger in a way. Uh, if the mainstream outlets aren't providing liquor, that's where people are going to go. So I think it's important that, that these conversations – that it, there be an open enough climate, not a kind of climate of silence around these subjects.
0: Okay. So, uh, thank you. And, uh, people want to, uh, read more. The book is white shift population immigration and the future of white majorities, which I should say is a very data rich book. If you're a data nerd, your ship has come in <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a big book. Hey, I have a final quick question. It's, yeah. um, it's published by Abrams books, which last time I checked was mainly an art book publisher. Is that, yeah, they I think they do a lot of Wodehouse. I mean, I it was initially published, yeah. Maybe it's changed since I am am th- I'm talking about a couple of decades ago when they were known for pu- doing big, cop, beautiful coffee table art books.
1: Yeah, I think they do they still do a lot of those. Um uh-huh. they uh it was initially acquired by Overlook which then was acquired by Abrams. I mean, in in Britain it was Penguin. So it just depends on each country there's a separate uh, a separate okay. book deal. Yeah. Uh, but okay. not, there's no special reason why it's Abrams. But so uh, you're in British. So your first publisher was actually Penguin. Yeah, yeah. I so see. that's where I got the first uh, deal. But that's only UK Australia. Uh, it's not North America. So there was a separate printing uh, in North America. Okay.
0: All right. Uh, okay. Well, thanks a lot.
1: And thanks uh, very
0: much, Bob. All right.
1: Take care. Take care. Before you go, a quick message from the suits of Blogging Heads TV. Bloggingheads will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Blogging Heads programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.